Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. A special welcome to those of you who are joining live via the Integral Life Portal or the Developmental Politics Facebook page, which is carrying me live. And the, the latter is run by the Institute for Cultural Evolution and the former is run by Integral Life. And I appreciate both of you for sponsoring me all these many years. This will be my next to the last episode, regular episode at least, of the season. I'll be here next Wednesday, May 25th, but then I am taking the summer off, at least from the weekly podcast. We'll see what, what else I get up to. But uh, I will return to this format on the first Wednesday of September, which is September 7th. All right. So... Speaking of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, my guest today is the founder and president of the Institute for Cultural Evolution, and also my good buddy, Steve McIntosh. Hey, Steve. Hi, Jeff. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks yes, for having me on. Indeed. Have you gotten your second coat of paint on yet? Uh, no, I'm waiting for it to thoroughly dry. Uh, we're putting the finishing touches on the Zen garden in the backyard. And so I had to kind of paint the window trim to make it look less, uh, you know, less Western. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, uh, uh, Steve and I live uh, around the corner from each other. Uh, just a complete coincidence, wonderful coincidence. And you and your beautiful artistic wife, Taya, are putting a little Zen garden in your backyard, right? Yeah, I mean, we've had one for a while and it kind of got overgrown. We had the main thing we have back there is a hot tub that's kind of sunken into the ground. So it's a little bit like a Japanese onsen. And uh, so we go out to the Zen garden and sit in the hot tub and appreciate, you know, the, the Zen of it all. And that's kind of an area of our house, which we wouldn't use if we didn't have the hot tub back there. And so we, we've got a new hot tub. And so now we're fixing up our garden and it's looking good. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm not allowed to see it until it's fully done. So I hope you uh, get it. <laughs> Almost. Done yes. All right. So we wanted to talk today about an issue that's, you know, important to both of us, very important to most people in the integral world and, um, you know, big in the headlines. And that is the climate crisis, basically. And, um, and I know that's been an animating issue for you. And it's one of the big reasons that you founded the Institute for Cultural Evolution, because you think, as I do, that the ideas of cultural development bring something to the party, you know, bring something to the solution, you know, sort of uh, agenda of this issue that no nothing else does. And I thought maybe we just start there with um, a look at what you call cultural intelligence and how it helps us frame it and you know act more intelligently. Sure. Well, cultural intelligence, as we you know say on our various websites, is the ability to step outside your own worldview to see it both for the reasons that you ascribe to it as well as its negatives that other people see it for, and the ability to recognize uh, the positives of the other worldviews, the other major worldviews that inhabit the political landscape of the United States. But rather than go on about uh, cultural intelligence and its practice, um, the, I think we can say that, it, that it, it could help in overcoming the rather stuck position we're in regarding uh, um, mobilizing all the resources of the United States 
to um, uh, uh, combat global warming more effectively than it is now. Right. So so personally speaking, as you mentioned, this is this is my number one uh, political issue. I'm more concerned about this and I'm willing to uh, vote, you know, or advocate whatever it's going to take at this point to um, overcome climate change. But what I think, you know, my personal predilections as somebody who's very concerned about this, it's because of that that um, both on the um, Institute for Cultural Evolution website, we, we have a uh, um, issue position, we have a platform, growing platform of issue positions. One of the issue positions is our, our take on climate change. We're advocating for a kind of climate realism, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, I think a little bit is uh, if, if, we, if we can, you know, pardon the, the war analogy, but I think fighting climate change and the, the threat of uh, destabilizing the biosphere and, and wreaking havoc on humanity and global civilization, that the threat of it, um, the, the closest thing we can compare it to is something like World War II. And I think that while the, um, the, the elements of the Build Back Better bill that uh, um, Joe Biden has been trying to pass and whether uh, he can get it passed before the midterms and the anticipated uh, loss of uh, perhaps both houses um, is still a big question. But, but as far as I can tell, um, a big part of the Build Back Better bill was some uh, meaningful uh, legislation on combating climate change, but because that's tied in with the larger elements of Build Back Better bill that it's kind of stuck at the moment and yeah. whether it'll go forward or not, we don't know. But um, I think this is, a, this is a, an important time to, to look at our strategy, to sort of say, okay, if this is World War II, then we, we don't need to have, um, we need to combat this with all the realism and strategic, uh, you know, um, uh, understanding that we can bring. And I think that that realism and that strategic understanding, uh, I think, points to the fact that the, 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 the effort to overcome climate change uh, is, is stalled or it's not getting the job done quick enough. It's, it's not adequate. Our, our strategy is, is uh, not getting the job done. And when I say our strategy, I mean, there's the Biden administration strategy, uh, and I applaud that. Um, but even then, um, even if the Build Back Better provisions were passed in their entirety, uh, there's a lot of, um, I think, misunderstanding. I think a lot of climate activists um, want us to think of it as a domestic problem, you know, as if we could adopt something like the Green uh, New Deal, and that would, uh, uh, that, that would solve, if we could solve it domestically, then that would solve it globally. Unfortunately, uh, the United States is emitting somewhere between 11 and 15% of global carbon. And so even if the United States were to cut its carbon in half, for example, uh, that would um, be helpful. It would be exemplary. It would help political will across the world. I'll, you know, I'll take it if we could make it happen. But that, that, that's only going to make a small dent in a much larger problem. And so the the what I what this realist strategy calls for is is a recognition that we have Plan A as as promoted by you know Bill McKibben and the mainstream climate movement, 
and that plan A is uh, strategically not getting the job that we're losing under that strategy, and that there is a plan B. Uh, we advocate for it in, in our um, issue position, mm -hmm. and I want to explain what I mean by that. So um, Bill McKibben, uh, you know, certainly one of the major leaders of the climate change movement in the United States, uh, he, he has a big platform. He has a you know, huge social media following. He writes a regular column in The New Yorker, and I think his last one was March 18th, where he, uh, you know, assessed the situation and um, reiterated Plan A, and and Plan A, which is that there's an iron logic that uh, that fossil fuels are are ruining the planet, and that it's going to cause catastrophe. And the iron logic is we need to um, get off the of fossil fuels right away. You know that that is the economy is so much less important than the planet that the iron logic points to the fact that, that we just need to take the economic pain and you know jack up fuel prices to 10 bucks a, a gallon or whatever it's going to take to um, properly price the consumption of carbon so that it captures the negative externalities of the global warming that it's producing right so you know in other words the, the pollution has not been part of the price and we need to make that part of the price, and, and that would be um, um, pricing it appropriately so that the costs, I mean, the costs of uh, renewables are already uh, shown to be less, except that we don't have the, um, the political will to uh, um, take over uh, enough land with the solar panels and the wind turbines to build the transmission lines and, and various ways of, of transmitting the energy from one part of the country to the other. Um, and of course, whatever problems we can identify in the United States, these problems are writ large globally, you know, which is 85% of the carbon. Um, so the, the trouble with plan A is that it, it's just, it continues to repeat the iron logic that we just, you know, that, that renewables are what we need. We need to get off of fossil fuels. And again, I, I, if that could happen, I would be ready to endorse it and ready to take the economic pain that would went with that, even though it wouldn't fall on me as hard as it would fall on um, some of the other people, especially many working class Americans. But, but just bracket that concern for the moment. Got it. The, the, the big problem with plan A is that it doesn't, there's not enough political will. That is the, the you know, the, 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 there's both a technological problem uh, and then there is a political will problem. And the political will problem shows no signs of being overcome. Hence the, 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 the realization that the, 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 the sort of the plan A has always operated on the logic that as global warming gets worse and worse, we'll reach a political tipping point that eventually we will have enough people who take this seriously because, you know, Miami will be underwater, you know, whatever, whatever the, this tipping point is, you know, giant block of Antarctica will, you know, uh, calve off, whatever it is. Right, I think right. that, that the, the, the fact that we're still waiting and hoping for a tipping point in that regard has to be critiqued. It has to be recognized at this point in our history as unrealistic. And part of the problem with plan A is that the, the political will problem is somehow bracketed. And, and it's just a matter of, of, of um, putting out more information, more science, more cajoling, yep. more lobbying for Democratic candidates, et cetera. Um, but again, I, I don't see that as, yep. as getting the job yeah, done in any kind of serious way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And as developmentalists, we can see that that worldview is the worldview of post-modernity. 
Well, certainly, I mean, you know, that is awareness of pollution starts in modernity in the 19th century. But then as post-modernity, you know, the, the progressive postmodern worldview emerges, uh, concern for the planet, a sort of holistic concern, not just about the smog from coal fires in London, but but the, the, the fact that the, the earth is a biosphere that we can recognize as a holistic system. Some have personified it as Gaia, but that it's entirely fragile and that we need to have a world-centric understanding of the global fragility of the environment. Yep. So, so environmental consciousness has been significantly accelerated and um, uh, mainstreamed to a certain extent by progressive postmodernism. So they need to be credited for that. And they're the ones who are continue to be most concerned about it. They're screaming from the roof rooftops that this is going to be the end of humanity if we don't get more serious about it, right? So again, I'm sympathetic, but it's not overcoming the political will problems. We just kind of, it's like banging your head against well, the wall. It's not convincing the modern and traditional worldviews. Right. I mean, those are, you know, these are our bases, our political bases and our psychological bases in a way. So I spoke to a, um, a climate class, you know, an integral climate class uh, about a month ago, and I pulled the group, there was about 35 people, and I asked them, well, how many people feel that it's already too late to prevent some kind of radical collapse of civilization, or, you know, the biosphere, or the Gulf Stream, or just some apocalyptic scenario? How many people think that it's, we're already past the point of no return on that? And the majority of people in the class raised their hand and said that they thought that the collapse was, was inevitable, yeah. right, which is, of course, disturbing. Then I asked the class, how many people would vote to overturn democracy if there could be some kind of a climate dictatorship, if, if there was a coup that took over the United States and most of Western Europe with a cadre of folks that recognized that they had to save the planet and that the only way to overcome the political will problem was to um, get rid of democracy and just do what had to be done. How many people would be willing to overthrow democracy in this emergency situation, perhaps later to reclaim it? And? and nobody, nobody in the class was going to overthrow <laughs> democracy. One guy went like this, you know, so, so um, I, you know, that, that, that's a kind of a contradiction, right? I mean, if yeah. the planet is about to go down the tubes, then we should be willing to do everything. Now, yeah. I do not advocate for an overthrow of democracy. Um, I, uh, you know, believe uh, that that um, climate change is a real threat. And we're already past the point where there's going to be massive disruption and suffering and human toil, and it's going to roil our history for sure. But I'm not to the point where I'm, I'm, I think that, that the collapse of civilization is inevitable. I'm not to the point where I'm ready to advocate for the overthrowing of democracy, heaven forbid, right? We're, we, I think yeah. we, we can get through this. Um, and while certainly there's going to be some damage and, it's, and a, a significant amount of adaptation that needs to be done, um, I think that we can overcome the political will problem, but not with plan A, yeah. which is why, you know, we advocate plan B. And plan B is sort of just energy realism. And, and so let me say what I mean by that. Okay. Um, the, the, the one thing that cultural intelligence can see is that the, this progressive postmodern worldview has a, a, a telos in history. In other words, whether that is internally autopoietic, you know, telos just coming from within itself or whether there's something larger, we can set that aside. 
but but I think that you don't have to think about anything metaphysical to recognize that that this worldview of progressive postmodernism is is a system of joint commitments and shared values, and it has a momentum and it has a uh, a disposition. You know, and, and these are things which I'm labeling telos. Maybe there's a word that people would like better, but but a huge part of it from the beginning. It, it formed in the wake of the negative externalities or the destructive this history of, of modernity. Right, the world wars, you know, the colonialism, all, all of the negatives of modernity, and, and especially environmentalism, consumerism. Yeah, these are all dire world problems that have spurred the emergence of this counter countervailing worldview, and that from the beginning, you know, from its emergence as a democratized worldview in the '60s through its maturation over the last several decades. The one thing that binds all these different kinds of, of, of movements and values together is an intense regard that we could label as anti-modernism, right? So modernity is seen both unconsciously and certainly consciously in many ways as, as the problem that needs to be fixed or overthrown, right? So again, this is understandable. This is where evolution, this is an opportunity it had to go to fix what was wrong with modernity because yeah. modernity was sort of taken over the world. And so I'm- Also point out that modernity did the same thing with tra traditionalism. Yeah, to a degree, you know, yeah. until they reached a kind of a cultural truce, right? So, so the, the, I'm-, I'm I, I'm not saying that that it was that this progressive worldview that its trajectory in history could do otherwise than right. to push off against modernity. And so many of the leaders of the climate change movement, like Bill McKibben and like Naomi Klein, um, that that for them, they can't help but attach this larger uh, um, um, progressive concern with overthrowing modernity. That, that is, that, that as Naomi Klein has made clear in her, um, in her books and in, in her um, public um, comments, that, th that the only way we're going to solve climate change is to overthrow capitalism. That the free market system is, is, is really the cause of global warming. And until we recognize the iron logic that capitalism has to go if we're going to save the planet, and that is if it's capitalism versus the planet, the planet wins every time. It's that simple logic that characterizes plan A. And it's and ironically, perhaps, it's that very logic that is a, a major barrier to the formation of the adequate political will that we need, right? So in, in his uh, latest New Yorker piece, he quotes Naomi Klein approvingly. So let me just read this like two sentence quote. This is, this is Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben writing in the New Yorker recently. He says, but as Naomi Klein recently told me, the hard truth is that environmentalists can't win the emission reduction fight on our own. Winning will take sweeping alliances beyond the self-identified green bubble with trade unions, housing rights advocates, racial justice organizers, teachers, transit workers, nurses, artists, and more. So in other words, you know, again, plan A is that while climate change doesn't generate the kind of heat and passion that the murder of George Floyd did in 2020, right? Racial justice is a big motivator politically within the progressive postmodern worldview and in, in large parts of the other the rest of the society, but climate change can't generate much passion. At least they haven't been able to do it so far. And so her idea is that it's, we're going to just make this, we're going to, we're going to double down. We're going to make climate change even more identified with the progressive postmodern left. That that you know we're going to make alliances with the racial justice movement, and then somehow, you know, we're gonna we're gonna ignore or overcome the fact that progressivism in the United States is extremely unpopular, 
And, and yeah. while it might generate riots, it, it's not going to win any elections. Well, let's just say it's unpopular uh, amongst the, what, 70% of people who are postmodern. Right. Yeah. And, and the, post, the rate of growth or the, the tipping point where everybody becomes postmodern, that's an unrealistic fantasy at this point based on right. what we can see. Yeah. So, so it's important for people to understand how the 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 the, the current good-hearted, you know, clear-thinking people who want to overcome climate change through this progressive Plan A by just you know getting rid of fossil fuels and and uh, uh, immediately switching to renewables, that that the, the the level of fantasy surrounding that has gotten to the point where it's really a big part of the problem at this point, because there's this knee-jerk reaction, this the iron logic by which modernity's overthrow, you know, capitalism's overthrow is uh, sort of inextricably tied together with the need to, to um, reduce our emissions, right? That's the only way. And, and reducing our emissions and, and creating the technology that is going to actually make a difference globally um, is is actually um, not uh, something that that can be done with Plan A. As a matter of fact, that's much easier to do than overthrowing capitalism or modernity. Yeah. So the, the fact that they can't help themselves but saddle their deep desire, the, the, this deep telos of crushing modernity, they can't help but but attach that. And that baggage is one of the main reasons why the meaningful, moderate action on climate change is opposed by a giant portion of the country, either explicitly or you know implicitly at the ballot box. Right? Yep. The, you know, Democrats do it um, not so much by voting against it, but by showing consistently in polls that it's number ten or less on their priority concerns. Right? Even though it should be number one. Yep. So, so th this understanding of progressivism's sort of capture of the issue of climate change and the need to, to, to make it a broader issue, the need to kind of uh, loosen the grip of progressivism and its other societal projects from this is part of this climate realism that I'm recommending. And that goes with plan B. So what does plan B look like, right? So we, we detail it um, with a 10 page uh, issue position on the Institute for Cultural Evolution website but I can summarize it by saying, obviously, we're, 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 we need to have an energy transition as soon as possible. And the United States, even though it's only responsible at this point for you know, whatever it is, 15% of global carbon, it has been the country which has produced more carbon historically. We have a much greater moral responsibility than perhaps any other country, regardless of where our pollution levels currently are. And so understanding that because it's a global problem, the United States has a significant responsibility to lead in this area. The, the place where we can lead is in um, what we recommend is, is a sort of a Manhattan project, like the, the government project that, that created the atomic bomb during World War II. They brought together all the best thinkers. It was a patriotic effort, unlimited funding, and they were able to produce some scientific breakthroughs. So, um, you know, again, this has been critiqued by those who say, no, the, the easier thing is to overthrow capitalism. But I would say, you know, sorry, that's not going to work. So, so it's, it's not like techno-utopianism. I'm just saying that, that, that we're in a better position, perhaps, than any other country to create the technology that could be exported 
to China and India and Brazil and these other industrializing economies that are not going to stop industrializing because uh, we tell them that, that the, the atmosphere can't handle any more carbon. So it's up to us to come up with to alternatives that they can use. That's the kind of leadership mm -hmm. that, that is the most important right now. And, and that could happen a lot more swiftly if the United States government approached it like a Manhattan Project. And the political will to create a Manhattan Project, right? We can't even create the more moderate uh, reforms that are uh, advocated by Biden at the moment. But that's because of the political polarization. If there was a, a climate realism movement that could capture at least part of the right, you know, that wasn't, that was consciously not anti-capitalist, that was energy realistic, that realized that the political situation is if gas were to go to $10 uh, a, a gallon, that the working class people in the United States would overthrow whoever was in power. So it's just, it's, it's politically, we have to do what we can politically. And what that means is, is retool climate change advocacy to purge uh, the, the, the anti-modernism and anti-capitalism from it and to uh, recruit a politi politically significant portion uh, of those on the right, uh, you know, sensible modernists on the right who recognize this, but who were afraid to get behind it because of its current leadership. And so um, let me read another quote. This one's from uh, Ted Nordhaus and, uh, and Morgan uh, Bazillion. Ted Nordhaus is the, um, the head of the Breakthrough Institute, which stands for eco-modernism, which is a part of what we advocate in our um, issue position. Ted, uh, they write in the Wall Street Journal in a uh, op-ed, the climate discourse gyrates between apocalyptic doomsaying and utopian claims that a rapid energy transition is over a decade or two is within reach. But the politics of an actual energy transition can only proceed by detaching it from the grandiose demands of the global climate commentariat, right? So, so right they, like us, have, are advocating a version of climate realism that recognizes that we're not, with the, with the energy as, as the war in Ukraine is showing the political pain points that come with energy that all the high-minded you know, moralism in the world can't keep Germany from just turning off the taps. Now they're trying to do it, power Russia. to them. But, but um, you know, it, well, Germany from turning off the tap from the Not Russian pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so I, I think it's, it's almost like, you know, like going back to the World War, World War II analogy you know, at the beginning of World War II, uh, people who know the history of, of World War II will know the United States experiences a, a significant defeat in, in North Africa at the uh, Battle of Kasserine Pass. And, and this was sort of a wake-up call to the fact that, that the United States military was not ready to face the Wehrmacht and that um, they replaced uh, the, the, you know, the general staff of the United States Army because of that. And they brought in somebody who could execute a campaign uh, that would lead to victory, George Patton. Uh, and, um, and you know, that's sort of the history of World War II. I think we need something um, similar now uh, in terms of um, uh, new leadership uh, that can, can have uh, the necessary cultural intelligence to recognize what significant steps we can make toward uh, climate realism. And, and to recognize that it's not a domestic uh, policy problem, that uh, it's a global problem, it's a technological problem, it's an engineering problem, uh, and that while it would be great if it were possible to significantly reduce emissions and uh, transition to renewables overnight, um, it's not. 
And, and it's that realism that, that makes us face that hard truth and, and adjust our strategy accordingly. Right on. Do you see anybody uh, in the political sphere who is uh, advocating for this uh, effectively? Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Michael Schellenberger is I have my reservations about him. I think, you know, my critique of him is that he kind of tells people on the right what they want to hear, it seems, is that, you know, he was on the left, now he's kind of on the right, sort of partisan right in many ways that I find tough to take. So I'm not, um, you know, it's, it's with that caveat that I mentioned that uh, Schellenberger was one of the co-founders of the Breakthrough Institute, along with Ted Nordhaus. I know that Ted probably would like to get a little distance from Schellenberger at this point himself, just because of his controversial and provocative statements. Nevertheless, uh, Schellenberger, who's running for governor of California, is getting a lot of attention. I don't think he has a chance to be elected governor, but he certainly, you know, Barry Weiss sure loves him and the Wall Street Journal loves him. And, and lots of people feel that we need somebody like him. I'm not sure I'm ready to say we need somebody like Michael Schellenberger. You know, again, I object to many of his political views, but if you ask me who's out there who understands uh, climate realism and who's not a climate change denier and who's not a, a person who's downplaying the global significance of it, I could point to him as a, a up and coming politician who, who is a climate realist. Yeah. Uh, do you um, see a, uh, in terms of this Manhattan project, um, I, I I, there, there's part of me who wants to notice that a lot of this is happening under its own power in terms of companies and Elon Musk and this one. You know, everybody, one of the good things about the, this postmodern view of, of, you know, plan A, if you will, is that most of the people in leadership uh, sort of are sympathetic. I mean, everybody's all in on climate, uh, you know, who are running the nonprofits and corporations. And, um, you know, there's a bottom-up approach to this that I just want to notice, right? Sure. Well, you know, again, having environmental consciousness, trying to live lightly on the planet, you know, being aware of your carbon, all that's part of the general cultural uh, upsurge. And I that's great. You know, I, I want to advocate for that. I don't want to throw cold water on the folks who want to continue to create political will in the United States. I just want those same two folks to recognize how, how their, their same efforts to build political will, that there's another force that's diminishing political will. And that's the forces of, you know, the, the, the progressives who, who are intensely anti-modernist. Yeah, no, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so, so the, the, the point I kind of want to make is that, um, it may get solved by over the next 20 years through significant technological breakthroughs, like the perfection of carbon capture or the per- perfection of nuclear fission or other technologies that could be exported and that would be able to um, uh, overcome fossil fuel burning throughout the world in, in a you know relatively short time. But their political will is important as well. Because right now, um, in among many people uh, in the United States who are on the right, anything having to do with climate change is tainted with this progressive telos. So, you know, the, one of the most effective ways that we can build political will is reverse the damage that that has been done, where people think that this is strictly a left wing issue. 
Right. And so that's where some leadership within the left regarding advocating climate realism in the face of, of uh, you know, the fantasy is, is part of what needs to be, needs to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, um, that, that, that while it may happen regardless of the political will, even if there was a, a suite of breakthrough technologies that were achieved right now, you know, uh, Manhattan Project or no, implementing those, getting those into the system is a matter of political will. And that political will, again, you know, the, the technology and its implementation go hand in glove. And that's why the more we can uh, champion the idea of climate realism and help people appreciate that there is a plan B that's emerging. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's, it's more tailored to deal with the realities on the ground. Like if we were having a war, it wouldn't be um, uh, sticking to principles. It would be doing whatever it takes and doing whatever it takes short of overcoming, overthrowing democracy uh, involves um, recognizing that we need to get modernity on our side for this yeah. rather than seeing it as the enemy that that needs to be stopped uh because it, it it's just yeah that's not going to happen no. it's not um it's you know, not voluntarily gigantic <laughs> tipping point that we can't anticipate or right. shouldn't anticipate yeah nor should it of course uh, you know if, if i think about this you know i think about so plan a is the postmodern view it's a crisis it must be approached with all due effort and then there's the modernists, which is the more techno solutions. And then there's the traditionalists. And, you know, even those people, I think of my relatives, I think of the people I grew up with, they value the forests and the, you know, water and the air. And, um, you know, we can all agree on there's a, it, I'm not sure, it, it calls for a, an agreement of all, but all three of those have to be taken into account if we're going to have a new integration, right? I would say that there are many people who are in the traditional worldview, who are even, you know, Trump voters, who, if we were to uh, make clear how part of the problem is this, um, you know, is this anti-modernist agenda, anti-capitalist agenda, if we were to separate that and you know, kind of bracket that a little bit, I think that that would uh, uh, enable many people who feel that it's an identity issue to be against it, right? That they, they need to be against it because that's who they are. That's what their, their group loyalty requires. I think we could pick off many of those people and make them climate realists. I just don't think that we're gonna make them uh, advocates of plan A because it's too late for that. And uh, you know, a sense of urgency and a sense of not waiting for more science to come in is part of the realism that I'm advocating. Right. What do you think's gonna happen, Steve? Do you think we're gonna get um... You know, we're going to go with more nukes. Are we going to build the pipeline from the Great Lakes? Um, you know, is what 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 do you see on the horizon? Well, um, I, I I mean, it's all just a guess. I know. Yeah, but. I mean, I you know, I, I'm there are people who are extremely expert in this, and so I don't want to be too much of a of a dilettante talking about technology that I haven't really you know got my arms around. But it's certainly, I think uh, that that. Um, this, this hope that we're gonna have one or more breakthrough technologies, like I mentioned, that are, are going to not just be some incremental one or 2% difference, but are gonna make like a 50% difference, a gigantic difference, and something that China can implement in, in relative short order. Um, I think that's what's gonna save us, but I, I'm not relying on that. I, I, I say that with uh, some reservation because I, I think it's, 
you know, part of the realism is not to rely on a techno-economic magic, you know, some, some miracle. I think that, that while it's ultimately technology that's going to make our transition away from fossil fuels much more rapid, and I think we need to invest there significantly, um, but again, to do that requires political will, and that political will is currently being stymied. So, yeah. so these are the these are the pieces that we can see and advocate for. And in the meantime, I hope all of the um, smart people who are working on technological alternatives achieve some um, big breakthroughs uh, in the short term. Yeah, right on. Well, just so we can get a nice groove cut with this idea of Plan B, why don't you sum it up for us? And also, where do people go if they want to find out more? Sure. Well, a Plan B would is is a, um, a, a what we're advocating, as I've said, is a, um, a a commitment by the federal government and perhaps other governments in partnership to the extent that there's no uh, you know political uh, counter incentives there that the Western world, you know, the de developed world, uh, as much as possible, that that we we create a Manhattan Project, not just by throwing money at it. But by making it a, um, you know, we need to survive as a nation sort of approach, like a, a patriotic approach, where the government, like in wartime, can bring together all of the experts and recruit people out of industry, can, you know, get Oppenheimer to come and figure out how to do, how to split the atom, um, th th that, that public-private partnership with, you know, an, an, a technological development intense intensity that we haven't seen since World War II is the, the chief program of Plan B. Um, another element of Plan B is the recognition of uh, fossil fuel realism, that even though uh, renewables are cheaper, renewables are what we need, renewables are what we need to transition to right away, the idea that, um, that there's, there, throwing the economy into a significant recession uh, is, uh, you know, it, 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 by just throwing the brakes on fossil fuels and, you know, pricing gas at $10 a gallon or whatever it's going to take, that that's, um, that, that's going to set back uh, the issue that, that, that if somehow that was possible, that would create an upheaval politically to the extent that whoever was in power to be able to do that would be overthrown. At least that's part of the realism of recognizing, um, you know, that, that this, that the pain that goes with it um, needs to be endured as much as possible, but not more, not to the point where it destabilizes, you know, our democracy. So, so, um, you know, again, lots of the other elements are kind of technocratic. It's not a slogan. You know, I, I, you know, I think we need to, to get more serious about technology. We need to recognize that it's, that it's far from a domestic political issue and that playing domestic politics about something like a carbon tax, which, you know, would, would be good for the United States. It would be a good signal to send to the rest of the world. I'm for it if it could happen. But a carbon tax is less popular than defunding the police. Yeah. So, so sort of this recognition that, okay, what can we do? What, what, what can we work with? And there are many things we can work with that we're not working with as effectively as we can. And part of that is that recognizing how the climate change movement is captured by the progressive left, which has a lot of other agenda items, which make agreeing with climate change much more difficult than it should be. Well said, man. Yeah. So uh, to find out more, people can go to the Developmentalist magazine, right? We have our issue platform there. And it's also on the headquarters website for the Institute for Cultural Evolution, which is uh, culturalevolution.org. And people can read the various um, uh, papers that we have. Our approach is win, win, win. 
So we offer a win-win-win on uh, uh, at least a domestic American approach to climate change. You know, where we can only influence American politics so much. But America does need to lead. America has made this mess. We're more responsible for it than anyone. And I think that that we have a deep obligation in the history of humanity to um, to lead more effectively on this. And I would say the best chance we have to lead more effectively is to adopt the realist approach. Yeah. Well, I, I just have to pause on the win-win-win because you apply that. And win, it's a win for post-modernity, a win for modernity, and a win for traditionalism. It's a very developmental um, idea here and very potent in that way. And you apply that to a number of the issues of the day. Sure, um, I'm working on more right now. Yeah, and uh, for that, I'm eternally grateful. So thank you so much. Well, thanks, Jeff. You're a big part of it. You and I talk about it all this time. You're a director and a major supporter of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. I'm so on the board. we're definitely in this together and appreciate your your help in every way uh, to try to, you know, bring cultural intelligence to the fore uh, in these trying times in, in our history. Right on. Well, thank you, Steve McIntosh, co-founder, president of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And thank you from me, Jeff Salzman. I'll see you here next week, same time, same station, and then I take the summer off. All right. <laughs> All right. You deserve it. Good to see you, Jeff. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Steve. <laughs>